0: You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit CanbyFoursquare.com to learn more. Listen, I want you to do this with me. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Numbers. We're going to go to the Book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14 this morning. The Book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible, so you can go there. We're continuing our series in um, the gospel story, finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And I uh, I have really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed the process that we've gone through. I think this is a lot of fun. And I'm I'm ex- especially excited today because <clears throat> what we're going to cover are some of the journeys that the children of Israel took uh, in the Old Testament. And, and that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun because there's some of us leaving a week from tomorrow to go to Israel. So you actually get to see live and in person Everything that you read about, you get to see. And uh, that's so much fun. And so today, we're going to dive right into Numbers 13 and 14 and find out what God has for us. These are defining moments for the children of Israel. So let's pray. Father, today, we just ask your blessing would rest upon us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would touch each one of our hearts. Uh, Lord, we lean into you now. We listen to what you have to speak to us. We just thank you for your word, how faithful you are, what a blessing you are in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, and we say together, amen. In the Old Testament, Israel uh, has this title that God has given them, and it's the title of the wife of the Lord, or the wife of Jehovah. And you see that through the Old Testament, the way that Israel is described. and It's described like a marriage covenant. So this relationship that God has with Israel is a deep relationship. And now they're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, this relationship gets a bit rocky. This relationship uh, becomes a little difficult. Uh, What happens here is Israel begins to focus on what is perceived are the defects of God. Now, anytime you head down that road, you're probably going to find yourself in trouble. And when we read this passage of Scripture, that's exactly what we find out. They forget so much. That's really what happens. They forget so much of what God has done for them. And and you see that in Numbers 13 and 14. Israel has what we can call this selective memory disorder. I think all of us are inclined to that, where what we should do is we should remember the things we should remember and forget the other things that we, we really need to forget. Israel has this disorder. They forget the faithfulness of God how God has been faithful to them from the time they left Egypt to this point here. It's a defining moment in their life. In fact, for centuries after this, this time is going to be referred to. It's going to be looked at. It's going to be analyzed. It's going to be judged what they do at this moment in their history. All of us, I think, have experienced defining moments in our own lives where we've come out of, let's say, bondage. We've come out of sin, and now we're walking into the promises of God. And there's that kind of that bridging moment, that time where you're making decisions about your friendships, you're making decisions about who you're going to be in Jesus Christ. It's not an easy journey. I remember that defining moment for me. I remember I was brought out of bondage in my life with Jesus. I was bought, brought out of sin, and I was in this place of really determining how I was going to follow Jesus. What was that going to look like as I moved forward? There was this defining moment. I went to a summer camp. I was sitting on the lawn. I'll never forget this. I was in a cast. I had some crutches. I had long hair, beard, looked kind of rough. And and this family friend came up to me, and he looked at me, and he says, you know what you need to do? He says, you need to go shave your beard and cut your hair. Now, normally if someone said that to me, I know what I would have done in my old life. But I thought at this moment, that is what God is saying to me. He's speaking something to me. This is a defining moment in my life. So I just got up as fast as I could. I hobbled over to the closest razor I could find. And I cut my hair and I cut my beard. When I got done, this man came back to me and he said, and you rose up early in the morning and you obeyed the Lord. Because what we're going to see here is whether or not the children of Israel obey the Lord. Whether or not they have a belief in their Jehovah, in this marriage relationship. In these two chapters Israel comes to the place where a decision needs to be made enter the promised land or not. So this reconnaissance team if you can picture this with me that they they they're put together and they're they're sent out 12 spies one from each tribe and they go into the land that God had promised. What were they doing? They were surveying. They were taking note of what was there and and what they needed to pay attention to and who they needed to pay attention to this is where the nation will be confronted with a decision they're going to have a choice to make god said to take the land or will fear cause them to retreat this is a big deal because this becomes israel's threshold moment in history this is the thing that people write about Their walking turned into wandering. Their marching became their meandering. And their witness became their wailing. It's something that will be spoken of throughout history. And here's what's interesting about the 40 years in the wilderness. While there are a few things that are spoken of in Scripture, it's relatively silent. There's not a lot said about those 40 years. Those 40 years that they wandered, that they walked away from God, that they were trying to figure out what that relationship looked like. Those things that are mentioned are actually shameful. It becomes their shame. And even the New Testament writers, the authors, talk about this very moment. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. He said, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief is what they became immortalized for. They were known for being people of unbelief. God doesn't hide those shameful things. I mean, when he, when he writes a story, when he gives us a narrative, he includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Just think about it. If you were writing your own autobiography, you might be a little selective on what you put in there and how you want others to perceive you. Well, what does God do? God puts everything in there. And when I, when I read stories like this, it just validates to me the, the, the accuracy of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. It just tells me that the Scripture is live and true. Because if I were writing this, I would probably leave parts like this out. But God doesn't do that. The Bible records the good, the bad, the ugly, nothing's omitted. And so in chapter 13, the 12 spies are chosen. And when they come back, 10 give an evil report. And only two give a good report. And those two are notable. Those are the two that we usually remember when we talk about this era in the history of Israel. We remember Caleb. Caleb is spoken of well here in chapter 13. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And then Hoshea, Hoshea, whose name later was Joshua. He's noted in this passage of scripture as well. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, something to note about this name Joshua. Joshua is a name that was given to him. It means the Lord saves. Hoshia means to save. When you look at the Hebrew name for Jesus, it's Yahshua. It's Joshua. This is the Hebrew name. So Joshua, in a lot of ways, is a prototype for Jesus Christ. And so you see that as you progress through this passage of Scripture and go more into their history, you find the champion Joshua, And his courage, his bravery. So you see this, and it leads us. What we're going to read today leads us up to other parts of Scripture. This sets up the Old Testament of where the children of Israel are going to go. I want you to look at verses 17 through 22 of Numbers chapter 13. It says this. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said to them, Go up through the Negev, that's the desert, And into the hill country, that's north in Israel, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good? Is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So this is about July that's taking place. So they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin, as far as Rehob, toward Labo Hamath. And they went to and up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Heman, Shishai, and Talamai, the descendants of Anak, lived. These are the giants, the Anaks. Hebron, listen to this, Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. We're going to come back to that because that little phrase there means something to the people reading it. It meant a whole lot. And so you read this passage and you see what Moses has asked these spies to do. The 12 spies came up from the south. They actually went to the port town, the entry town of Kadesh Barnea. This is the entry point of going into the promised land. This is dry. This is barren. This is the desert. So you get this picture where they begin in barren, ugly, dry land, and they move north. And as they move north, the land becomes more lush, becomes more um, habitable. So they, they see the progression of the land, and it says they go north to Rohab, where it is lush, it is beautiful. Uh, the description that I can give you, if you've been to Israel, we go up into the Dan region, the foothills of Mount Harmon, and you go there and you see this lush place. If you've been there, you know, you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is where they're to go. This is the northern part of the promised land that God was wanting to give to the children of Israel. But notice in verse 22 where they came to Hebron, the spies would have probably stopped there. So Hebron is something that's very notable. It's something, it's something to remember in the history of Israel. Because here is a place that they would have stopped. And the reason they would have stopped is because this is where Abraham and Sarah and all the patriarchs were buried. They were buried in Hebron. Hebron is just a few miles out of what is today Jerusalem, the city of, city of Jerusalem. So they would have stopped there. They would have remembered. You, 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 would, you would have memorialized those individuals. These are their patriarchs. These are the ones that have brought them to this place. So Hebron is significant. Genesis chapter 14 talks to us about, about Abraham uh, going after the five kings of the region because those kings had come and kidnapped his, his nephew Lot And so you get this story of Abraham taking this place. And this is the place that he is buried. But you notice that little phrase I mentioned to you a little earlier. It says, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan, which today is modern Tanis. That's in Egypt, northern Egypt. Why is that so important for us to remember? Well, it's a clue. It validates who wrote this. It actually tells us who wrote this pentateuch who wrote these five books because there has been discussion who's who's written the the, the five first five books of the bible we know that most scholars say it's, it's moses and that's what we believe well this would be indication would be evidence that it is moses that wrote it because it seems like a bit of an add-on doesn't it well zoan was the secret private resort of egyptian royalty It was something only known by the pharaohs. It was something only known by the royal families of Egypt. So you have to think about how did he even know that was there? He knew, Moses knew it was there because he was brought up into Egyptian royalty. So he's actually letting you know that he wrote this, that Moses is the author of this passage. So that's why you see this little line in there. It's so intriguing to me because he writes it to indicate I've been there. I've been to this place before. Now I want you to look with me at verses 23 through 33 and listen to how the story goes. There's a lot of narrative here, and I love the story of what it says and how it's folded out for us. It says, when they reached the valley of Ishkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and some figs. That place was called the Valley of Ishkol because of the cluster of grapes and the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned, the spies did, from exploring the land from the south to the north and back again. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. Where were they? They were still at Kadesh Barnea. That's where they were staged in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, to the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. They said this. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. It's right here. But, or in some translations, nevertheless, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified. And they're very large. And even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they they live in the hill country. And the Canaanites, they're near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb, he silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up. We need to go up. We need to take possession of the land, for we can certainly do this. Nevertheless, the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw, there are the great, the great sized people, the strong people. We saw the Nephilim. They're the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They almost had it. They got there. They scoped the land out. They come back to this place, and the narrative changes. The story begins to change. You see, the Valley of Eshcol means cluster. It's right outside of Jerusalem. It's the picture that you have growing up in Sunday school. I don't know if you... You, you have this picture of, of this moment in the history of Israel where, where there's two men carrying grapes on a pole. That, that's, that's really the picture that's in my mind when I think about this. And I thank the Lord for good Sunday school teachers. But that's the thing that stands out. The land was lush then and it's lush now. So the spies returned back to Kadesh Barnea and all the people were there. They were waiting. They knew they were going to be gone for, for 40 days. And so They were waiting, waiting, bated breath to hear this report. Can you imagine? You're there. You're on the threshold. You're about to go into the very promised land that God had given you for centuries. And you're waiting to hear this report. And what they say, what they say next will haunt them for thousands of years. The words that come out of their mouth after this will haunt them for the rest of their lives. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, that's for sure. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. What it means is that that's a phrase for meaning profitable. It's, it's a prosperous land. The milk, we often think of cow milk, probably not, more like goats. And then the honey is probably not the honey we think of. We think of bee honey. This was most likely date honey. It's an extract or a syrup from dates. If you ever tasted it, it's really, really good. And so is pomegranate juice and all the other things that they give you. It's all, it's all fresh. Man, it almost throws me off in this message because it's so good. This is beautiful. And they're saying, this is what we saw. But now you go to verse 28. And here's where the tide changed. This is the defining moment for Israel. In your translation, it will say the word but or nevertheless. And when I read this, I go, oh, no, 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 no. Please, No. What's going to happen here? Look at the first fruits, he says, or the, 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 the report is, look at this fruit. Look at this fruit. And then they say, nevertheless, this report is going to go in a totally different direction. They have the fruit, but the fear will keep them from really seeing the fruit. And I think when I recognize things in my own life, places that I didn't go in to the promises of God, what was the main culprit was that I saw more fear than I saw fruit. When actually there is fruit, but fear will always blind you to fruit. You're either faith-filled or you're fear-filled. And here the report is full of fear. In verse 31, the ten say that those in the land are stronger than we are. Don't you just think that's a slap in God's face? I mean, this is their own appraisal. And when you read this, they'll recount it one more time. When you read this, they'll, say that they'll give this story again. And each time they give a negative report, it gets more and more exaggerated. It's kind of interesting. That's what fear does, doesn't it? Fear begins to exaggerate itself, being bigger than it really is, because the story gets more exaggerated. But I can't imagine what this felt like to the heart of God. I can't imagine after God had promised them. He said he would make a way for them. He parted the Red Sea. You have to realize that from the parting of the Red Sea to this moment in time, there wasn't but years that went by, just a few years that went by. They experienced those miracles. And here they say something like this, and I can't imagine what God felt like. They forgot the immeasurable strength of God. They forgot his faithfulness. These ten Give a bad or an evil report. And I think this makes it even more damaging. And what makes it more damaging when I read this is these are the elite. These are the Green Beret. These are the ones that were handpicked from every tribe. There's only 12 of them. Out of out of a million people, there's a 12 of them. And so these are the ones that were esteemed the most. They were leaders who had influence not only in their tribe, but they had influence over the whole nation. You see, when when someone gives a bad report, it's bad. But when leaders who've been chosen, handpicked, give a bad report, it's incredibly damaging. Those giving the report were the select. They were the cream of the crop. And they, they used their influence to turn people away from God's promises. They gave a report that swayed people in another direction. They go so far to say they are giants, and we are grasshoppers. That's an interesting contrast. Again, it's exaggerated a little bit. They are giants. We are grasshoppers. Well, there's a significance to that saying, because in ancient days, actually, grasshoppers are the smallest edible thing you can put in your mouth. See, if you've ever eaten a grasshopper, I have. I've eaten a few crickets just to see what it's like when people cook them. Go to John the Baptist. He could tell you. You know, he could tell you what this is all about. He ate grasshoppers. He got Why? Because they're full of protein. But they're the smallest edible thing that you can have. So it, it's almost like a little tiny appetizer. Almost like a, a shrimp cocktail. You know, that's what they're saying. Look at their giants and we're shrimp. We just chew them up. We'll just spit them out. So they had this huge contrast that they were presenting to God's people, to the nation of Israel. And so what happens here? They're saying they're huge compared to us shrimps. These ten put their faith in the giants. Joshua and Caleb had their faith in a giant God. Listen, you always lose when you put your faith in giants instead of the Dodger. I mean, instead of God. That's what I meant to say. Seriously, when you're looking at what's in the land there and you're seeing giants, the giants just grow and grow and grow. Imagine in their imagination, these people come back and they have this perspective of what they just saw. And then you have to ask yourself a question. How do you see your circumstances? How do you see the things around you? What is your perspective? Because it makes all the difference in the world. How big is your God? The story we go to that you fast forward down a little ways and you have the story of David and Goliath. And here you have someone like David who has great faith in God and he's looking at Goliath and he's saying, ah, he's nothing, he's nothing. And everyone's saying, he's huge. He's, he is actually a descendant of the Anak people. And so you you have this happening and he's looking and he goes, he's just a target that's easier to hit. He's nothing. You see, that is the report that God wanted to hear from the ten spies, or the twelve spies. He didn't hear it from ten, he only heard it from two. And what happens is they get X'd out of something that was promised to them. Look at Numbers chapter 14, because it changes and goes, it's the same narrative, and it pushes in a little further in verse 1 through verse 6. It says, that night, after they heard this report, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept out loud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose us a leader. These guys aren't doing a good job. Let's choose another leader. Let's let this leader take us back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell down on their faces in front of the whole of assembly of Israelites and that were gathered there. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, they tore their clothes off. They said, we can't believe we're hearing this. We can't believe we're hearing this. This is so grievous to us. This is something God has promised. And now, what are they saying? It says that the people wept all night. Why did they weep? Were they repenting? Were they crying out loud to God? They weren't repenting. That's not what they were doing. They were crying because they believed God had brought them this far. And now, he's not going to go through with what he said he was going to go through. They, They feel somehow tricked. They feel somehow that God's letting them down. The bad report had gone into their hearts. That's what happened. It went into their hearts. Fear is contagious. And especially when it's given by influential people, fear is very contagious. And there were more people spreading fear than there were spreading faith. They cried out, if only we would have died in the wilderness. Remember this. Remember this phrase. If only we would have died in the wilderness. Be careful what you wish for. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says death and life are all in the power of the tongue. They sealed their fate right here with these words. It hadn't happened yet, but it is now going to happen. Their fate has been sealed. Now listen, uncontrolled emotion will always lead to bad decisions when 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 our hearts are not disciplined when our minds are not disciplined and constrained by by God's spirit and by God's word we will make bad decisions and they are forgetting God's faithfulness God's history with them they had a horrible perspective of of their father of their god of their husband they had all these other stories that they were spinning and sending out to the people this is why it's so important For us to spend time in worship. Uh, That's why it's so important for us to come together as a group like this. Because who knows the week we went through. The giants we experienced. The things that we saw. And that when you get together and your report is that God is good. And you get together and you worship the goodness of God. And you get together and you honor Him together. There's something that happens. And if only one thing happens and that is fear is dispelled. It's worth it. I know when bad reports come my way, my response is to worship the Lord. I want that to always be my response. To be able to say, God, you, you're, you're greater. It's a time in worship. is a time where we adjust our perspective of God. That's what we do. They even go so far to say that if we go into the promised land, our wives and our children will die. Oh, are you kidding me? They're throwing that one up there. They're saying, you know, if we do this, listen, we're we're sounding really brave here. We're sounding like we're protecting our families. If we do this, you know what's happening? Our wives and our children will die. They're just chickens. But they're using this as an excuse. They were using their children as an excuse for their unbelief. And, And what they're really saying is we don't trust that God can take care of our children. We don't believe that God can do that. They are revealing what they believe about God in the statement. See, they don't believe God can take care of them. They don't believe God can take care of their kids. I think this is a big place of, of, of importance. For me, it is. Because I see that they were hiding behind what they said was the concern they had for their wives and their kids. But really, it's unbelief. This is a good lesson for all of us parents and grandparents. There are going to be times in the upbringing of our children and our grandchildren where it's going to be scary. It's going to be difficult. And our instinct is to shield, to protect, even if it is at the expense of God's call on their life. We want to keep them safe for the moment. We want to keep them safe. And that means in a lot of ways we're not trusting God with our kids. We're not trusting God with our families. Parents, grandparents, I want to encourage you today that you would trust God with your children. I know how difficult that is. Annette and I have walked through those seasons in our own life, raising our own kids. And you're seeing things happen, and and you're thinking, God, where are you? God, aren't you going to rescue them? Aren't you going to help us? Aren't you going to do this? And then we start inventing plans to intervene because we don't see God intervening the way we want him to intervene. And what happens is only trouble comes. I see a new generation, I really do, of young people. And I'm going to say this. I'm not going to be around to see them come to fruition altogether in their walk with Jesus Christ. And I'm sure Moses was thinking the same thing. And he's thinking, oh, God, you can't be saying this, guys. Ten ten of you, you cannot talk like this. I'm an old guy. And I don't want you to talk like this. I want you to be stronger than that. We're seeing a generation rise up, and I'm praying over this generation that's coming right now. Because I think that they they have a heart to follow God. And I want to, as a parent, as a grandparent, I want to encourage that. Now, here's the irony. The irony of what's being said here is the parents never made it to the promised land. But their kids did. God took care of their kids. The very thing they were worried about, God did. God did it. And you read that a little further in this chapter Then they wanted a leader who would lead them back into Egypt, back into bondage. We liked it the way it used to be. Even though we were were in bondage, even though we were slaves, we we liked it better. So is there someone here that will lead us? Apparently there were no takers because we don't even have a record of that. I'm sure if that happened, that person would have lifted their hand and been struck dead on the spot. That's 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 my thought. So this devastates Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. They tore their clothes. It's an expression of of grief, but it's also an expression of intercession. That they're grieving, but they're interceding. They're just saying, God, this can't be true. God, please intercede on our behalf. And then you go to verse 7. It says, and they said the entire Israelite assembly, they said this, the land we pass through, and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will, excuse me, this is uh, Caleb. He, if he's pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only not, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. Uh-oh. God's showing up. The father, the dad's showing up. Because of what they wanted to do here. Such clear thinking. When you read this, there's such clear thinking. There's such strong theology in this statement right here. So here's the thought of this statement. Why would the Lord go through all the trouble of sending plagues, of performing miracles, to only bring us this far to let us die? doesn't make sense. This is a statement that's saying, why would God do that? That's so far out, outside of who he is and what we understand and who we understand him to be. And verse 10, it says, the Lord appears. Do you notice in the Old Testament, the Lord will appear whenever there's rebellion? Whenever there's a challenge to his word or to his leaders, it's like, and the Lord appeared. Man, that'd scare me to death. All of a sudden, they're having this argument. Can you imagine this? And they, something's going on over here. And they look, and the presence of the Lord has showed up in the tabernacle. Oh, no. Something's going to happen here. Something's going to happen. You know what I've realized when you read this? It's better to be out in the desert, the wilderness, facing giants with God than be without God's presence in a land flowing with milk and honey. It's better to be with God wherever he is. And you see that to be true. With the stories of the New Testament and Jesus in the boat and they're all afraid. And I'm thinking, you know, I would probably be afraid, but I, I want to be with Jesus in a storm uh, rather than be without him in the calm. I want to be with Jesus in a storm because I know he's there. I know he's present. And then you look at Numbers 14, 11 through 20. It says, the Lord said to Moses, <laughs> this is the Lord talking to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague, destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And then Moses, he said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. And they have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. And that you go before them with a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So if you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say... The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their sin, the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. In accordance with your great love, Forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. This is why Moses is so revered. Moses is a great shepherd. People want to kill him, but he stands up for him. This is all a test. Where's Moses in all of this? What's he thinking in all of this? God's saying, I'll kill all these people and make you a great nation. And Moses doesn't take it. Do you know how many people would fall into a temptation and say, I'll I'll take that? I like that because these people are ticking me off. And I'd, I'd like to take you up on that, God. Moses doesn't do that. And in fact, it's interesting because you see that phrase, how long will I put up with these people? That's usually something that men say or women say to God and not God saying to man. And that's what's happening. God reversed it. And he's saying, how long do I have to put up with these people? And you see the shepherd heart of Moses rise up here. How long is found often again in the Bible, but it's usually asking God. But here it's God asking man. Moses understood God to be patient long-suffering, merciful, that God forgives again and again and again. And God is a covenant God. That's what He knows. And you're thinking, wow, God, you look at this and Moses taught God out of this. No, that's not what happened here. What's happening here is Moses is only reciting back to God what God revealed to him. This is how Moses understands God. This is how Moses lives with God. And so he says back to God, This is my experience with you, God. This is my testimony of walking with you. This is what I have come up with. These are my conclusions. So Moses was inspired to pray this way based upon what God already revealed about himself. When I read this, and I want to finish, the big takeaway for me is God has begun to work in you. And like I stated from the beginning, there was something in my life there was a defining moment where I knew the decision I was about to make would affect me the rest of my life. There aren't very many of those, but I remember that one. I remember thinking, this is really important. It doesn't have a lot to do with long hair and a beard. It has everything to do with do I believe or do I not believe. It has everything to do with do I want to go into the promised land or not. Do I want to rise to the call of God in my life. That's what I knew was at stake for me. The promise to you is he will do a good work in you until the day of Jesus Christ. When I read this story, I think, man, God, your faithfulness, and we continue to see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, and we see it now. We see how your faithfulness is carried out through all the generations. That the very best, God has for you begins with Jesus Christ. The very best that God has with you begins with Jesus Christ. We saw that last week. Somebody, people beginning their journey with God by receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The Bible story here ends for us this morning, and I want to read it to you. It says, Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory... And the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went into. And his descendants will inherit since the Amal- Amaleks or Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys. Turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route of the Red Sea. The very beginning of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That's what was ahead of them. Caleb was 40 years old at this time. Comes back 40 years later. He says, let me take it. 80 years old. He's saying, give me the land. I want the land. And Caleb's heart was captured, the heart of God. We want to take this. We want to do what God wants us to do. I want to finish just with this. Israel, at its peak, at its power peak under David and Solomon, only occupied one-tenth of what God promised them. See, God promised the promised land and that was 300,000 square miles. They took 30,000 square miles. What does that say to me? Says God wants more for me than I want for myself. And the only way that I'm going to get that is when I trust in him, when I believe in him and remember his faithfulness Would you remember that God wants more for you and he wants more for your kids than you could ever want? That's the promise. Walk in his promise and there's life, life abundant. For all of us, would you bow your head with me just for a moment? Father, we just thank you for reminding us that you are faithful, that you never go back on your word, that you always intervene on our behalf to bring life. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that today. And we ask your blessing would rest upon us and that we would remember you, not forgetting you. Lord, we would remember you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.